sermon this morning, which is from that third reading, which we would have read. Uh, we're continuing this focus. We've been on this focus now for some weeks, and I thank you for bearing with me. And I thank you that some of you are actually applying this and you're taking evangelism seriously and praying about people in your life, and some of you are, are taking the efforts to share and um, try to engage with people about your faith, and that's awesome. So, so as we continue that pr- uh, focus on prayer for evangelism and seeing lost people come to Christ, for the next two Sundays, I want to focus on a very exciting moment that's coming soon. This moment is going to be an incredible thing, and by looking at Scripture to see what is taught there about this moment, I'm praying that we will have these three things happen. That first, we will have our faith increased as we encourage one another with these truths. Second, we will have our desire increased to see the lost around us join us in the faith. And third, we will have our eyes on Jesus, who's coming again soon and very soon. So we look to this very encouraging passage of Scripture, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, if you want to start going there. But before I read this passage from front to back, I want to read the last verse first. Now, Janelle likes to take a book she's looking at for the first time and read the last chapter and then read the book. I, it drives me crazy. Why read the story if you know the ending? And with novels especially, I think it's so wrong to read the ending first. But with Scripture, in Scripture, knowing the end first is a great reminder. So, Janelle, I'm going to read the last verse first. Verse 18 says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So why did I read the last line first? To make Janelle happy. No, just kidding. (laughs) Now, <laughs> well, I've, I've talked before about imperative commands we find in Scripture, and we have to take note of these. Uh, they're words that tell us what we are to do, and I've told you this before in my Logos Bible software that I use to, to do all my study. I have a setting that puts all the imperative commands in uh, a kind of highlighter that's called on fire because I want my attention drawn immediately to that whenever I'm in a passage and there's an imperative command. Well, in the passage we're going to read, there's only one word in the entire passage that's an imperative command. It is a present active imperative. In other words, it's something we're being told to do, something we're being told to do right now, and something we are to do continuously. And the imperative is encourage. So now we see the purpose of what Paul has written up until this point. He has just told us something with this purpose in mind, that we use the words he's just written to encourage one another. Likewise, this is the entire purpose of the sermon this morning, encourage one another with these words. So we have the ending. Now let's go back to see what words exactly Paul is referring to that we are to encourage each other with. So going back to verse 13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here Paul is reminding a particular church, and by extension the entire church, that Christ is coming again. This is the whole idea of Advent. Christ is coming again. He has come once. He's fulfilled many prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, and his salvation is freely offered to all who believe. In the early days of the church, and rightfully so, people had an expectation that the second coming of Jesus would be soon. And we should share in that hopeful expectation. We should live our lives with it, and it should drive us to have great joy and hope, but also a sense of urgency about getting about the work of his kingdom so that when he returns, we may be able to, uh, we may be able to answer for how we spent our time in the meantime. In fact, the early church, it seems, had an expectation that most of them would not even see death, but that Jesus would come and they would not even die, but they would go with Jesus then. But as people began to die in their faith in the early church, many of them uh, that were still alive started to get concerned. What if, one of, what if those who died before Jesus came would somehow miss out on some of the blessings of witnessing the return of Christ? And so Paul addresses this concern here in the passage. Verse 13 again says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Clearly here that Paul is addressing them with some teaching that he feels they are lacking, either because they have not been taught this, or because they've forgotten it, or they've misapplied some other teachings. So he does not want them to be uninformed or ignorant. About what? About those who are asleep. Asleep is a euphemism for death. Jesus said Lazarus was asleep, meaning he was dead. It was a common way to refer to someone who is dead in those days. This does not refer to soul sleep, as some false teachers have taught. This is simply referring to physical death. We will learn more about the state of those who die in Christ as we continue through this passage so Paul wrote in other places about what happens to the one who dies. There's a, you can do a great study of it. Um, people have these questions all the time, and they don't realize that right inside of their Bibles, there's all the answers they're looking for. Um, but the body is dead, but they are, uh, they are home with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, for example, Paul says, We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, implying that if you're not in your body, you're with the Lord. Paul mused about whether he wanted to continue with his mission or to go home with Christ in Philippians chapter 1, and he writes, I'm hard-pressed between those two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul clearly believed that we're never separated from Christ. If we die before the second coming, we will still be with him. He will never leave us nor forsake us, and that includes if we die. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 says, Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, again, that's the euphemism for death, 
Whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. If you want further study on this, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and also 2 Corinthians 5. There's lots of other places where you can read about that. Uh, But Paul then says that we may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Many of you have seen the difference between a family dealing with the death of a loved one, uh, whether they're believers or not believers, there's a visible and tangible difference in how they handle the death of a loved one. A very stark difference when faced with the reality of death, when someone has no idea what happens, compared to one who has solid faith and understanding. And scholars have struggles a bit with this verse. Uh, is Paul saying we shouldn't grieve at all? Or is he saying that we shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope? Well, I think the Bible shows us a good example. Jesus wept for his friend. If it were wrong to weep or show grief in any way, then Jesus would have been guilty for sin of sin for crying when Lazarus died. But clearly that's not the case. So I think we can take this to mean that we don't grieve as others who have no hope. Sometimes we just need to look at the text of the verse and how it was simply stated and go on with that. I was surprised even that some of the commentators were trying to figure out whether this was uh, an absolute where you shouldn't grieve at all if you're a Christian when people die. Um, But I don't believe it says that. So we're naturally going to be sad at the death of someone we love and care about, but not in a way that indicates we have no hope. And believe me, the world will take note of how we deal with the aftermath of a death and see what sort of testimony of hope we have. And why do we hope, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Well, there it is. Paul said as well in 2 Corinthians 4, 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And Jesus himself in the Revelation to John says in verse 18 of chapter 1, uh, I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. What is the greatest evidence we have that God will raise to life those who have faith in Christ? The resurrection of Jesus himself. That's the most powerful evidence. He was raised from the dead. Many people witnessed that. And this is part of our hope that we have a personal resurrection. That he who raised Christ from the dead can and certainly will raise us. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. John Corson wrote in his commentary about this verse, he said, in other words, believers who have died are presently in heaven. Some falsely teach that when believers die, they remain in the casket until the rapture. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross next to him? He didn't say you will sleep for a couple thousand years and then you'll be resurrected. No, he said today you'll be with me in paradise. This, the moment uh, someone leaves the body at death, an amazing thing happens. He moves into eternity where there is no time. There's no past, present, or future. It's just all one great big now because eternity transcends time. How do I know this? This is continuing John Corson's quote. Albert Einstein hypothesized about heaven without even knowing it. His theory revealed that if one could ever travel at the speed of light, time would cease. 
Therefore, because God is light, time ceases in his presence. Thus, from the perspective of those in heaven, the rapture has happened. And we're already with them in heaven. It's kind of weird, right? How can this be? Think of it this way. Here's the example John Corson gives. I think this was a great illustration. I couldn't have done it better, so I'm going to quote his. That's okay, right? Okay. So (laughs) I got permission. All right. So here's his example. He said, here I am watching the Rose Parade on Colorado Boulevard. You find me watching the parade and say, hey, John, good to see you. Listen, did the General Electric float go by? Yeah, it was great, I say. Oh, I missed it. I really wanted to see it, you say. Well, you can still see it if you go down Colorado Boulevard, I explain. In other words, if you go to the past that's already past me, what's fresh for you will be something I've already seen. If you come to me and ask me what was coming up in the parade, I would say, I don't know. You'll have to go to the future to where the parade begins. On the other hand, I could say, let's get into the Goodyear blimp, and we'll be able to see the whole parade simultaneously, past, present, and future. This is the best illustration I know of to describe the concept of eternity. You see, we're down on the curb watching the parade of life, wondering what's coming. From heaven's perspective, like the view from the Goodyear blimp, it's all one big now. From heaven's perspective, the rapture has already happened. From our perspective, however, we're still waiting on the curb. I say this because many of us have dealt with the departure of loved ones, Personally, I do not believe that heaven could be heaven if a husband left his family behind and wondered how they would survive, or if a mother left her kids behind and worried about their well-being. That's why I suggest to you that heaven can only be heaven if we're all there simultaneously, end quote. Now, Paul addresses next the concern that people had that those who died in Christ might somehow miss out on some of the excitement or the blessing of being part of the event of the second coming of Jesus. So in verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the ones alive when Christ comes again are not going to precede or go before those who have died. And this is like worrying about reserved seats. If you go to an event with reserved seating and you've already paid for your seats and you've got the ticket, you've got the the coupon or whatever, you don't have to worry that someone else will get your seats if you get there just in time or even a few minutes late. This may be an inadequate illustration, but I know that all who are in Christ will experience the blessing of the second coming. No special awards or preferences will be given to those who are still alive when he comes. In verse 16, he continues, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So three sounds are mentioned here. A cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Commands are meant to be obeyed. The command of Christ will be obeyed. The voice of an archangel, some people say that could be Michael. He's mentioned as an archangel in other places in Scripture. Um, It could be another archangel. It's not clear that there's one or more than one archangel. Um, But it says the sound of of an archangel, so it makes you wonder if there's more than one. Um, And then finally, the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, when we see trumpets mentioned in Scripture, it's hardly ever in the sense of a musical instrument that's playing a song with an orchestra or something like that. Trumpets in Scripture have to do with announcements or commands or alarms. 
whatever we may take from this verse, we can take this. This event is going to have a sense of loudness to it. What do loud sounds do to us? If we hear a very loud sound, we react to it. If we're at our desk, we may look up to see where the sound was or what it was. We may even get up to investigate if it's a loud enough sound. I had a sound one time at my previous church. I thought there was a crash on the highway, and I looked out my window, and one of the lights in the parking lot had just fallen over. After years of wiggling in the wind, the welding at the bottom broke down. I was just glad it didn't fall on our car. Um, and nobody was there. It was on a Monday. So, But what do you do when you hear a crash like that? What's that? Ah, you go look. And uh, so we do that. We, uh, if we're driving and we hear a siren, we look around. We might look in our mirrors to see if we need to get out of the way of an ambulance or something. In Israel right now, alarms go off when incoming missiles are on the way and people rush to a shelter. And when Jesus comes again, it's going to be a very noisy affair. And you'll be able to hear it too, Becky. <laughs> a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here Paul is setting at ease the minds of those whose concern was that the dead in Christ would somehow miss out in, on this great event. So Jesus will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Verse 17, Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." This is an exciting verse. So the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those in, that are still alive at his coming will be caught up. This is commonly referred to as the rapture. Now next week, we're going to look at chapter 5 and see a little about the day of the Lord. But for now, we're going to stand task in chapter 4. So let's look at the word which means caught up or snatched up. According to the CSB Study Bible. Uh, there's a word that's harpazo that uh, is often invested with a, the idea of force. In this sense, harpazo means to, uh, to a rescue, refers to a rescue and the near forceful capture of Jesus by a crowd in uh, Acts 23. I'm sorry, in John 6.15. Um, the term is not limited to the physical realm. The evil one snatches away the message of the kingdom. So this is places where this same word is used in the Greek. Uh, in Matthew 13, 19, it says the evil one snatches away the message of the kingdom that's sown in men's hearts. Jude exhorts believers to snatch some men from the fire in verse 23 of Jude. And no one is able to snatch the sheep belonging to the good shepherd from our father's hand in John 10. Elsewhere, the term is used of supernatural phenomena that does not carry the concept of force. Paul received a glorious revelation after being caught up into paradise in 2 Corinthians 12. The Holy Spirit carries Philip away and transports him in Acts 8. Believers one day will be caught up to meet their returning Lord. So if we are alive when Christ comes, and we, we who are left will be caught up with them. Who is the them? Those who are dead in Christ, and they, will, they were raised first. And then those who are alive will be caught up with them. And we, whether we are already dead in Christ at that time or still living, all together will be caught up, snatched up, to meet the Lord in the air. 
Now, many people think this means that we are all going straight to heaven at this time. However, that's not what Paul is saying here. You see, in those days, if a dignitary was coming to a town, people would go outside the town as they were coming and meet them and then escort them back in. Sometimes people do this if you've been to their home. People have different traditions. They, there are people that you go to their home, and as soon as they see your car in the driveway, they come out and they walk in with you. Uh, where I grew up, we didn't do that when it was 20 below out. But some people do that, and at any rate, if we look at Paul's phrasing, and we know the culture of the time, we can understand that this meeting the Lord in the air is the type of meeting where uh, a dignitary would come and uh, the people would escort with. So if Caesar was coming, for example, to a town in those days, they would have the way into town filled with people and banners and streamers or whatever, making a grand welcome because he's Caesar. And so it will be with Jesus coming, we will be snatched up with him to be part of his escort, his host of people coming with him. So caught up in the clouds, does that mean we're going to go higher and higher until we get to heaven? God's kingdom will be here, and triumphantly we will come with Christ. The New Bible Commentary says, The command, the, angel, the angelic voice and the trumpet are interpreted as means of rousing those who are asleep in death and raising them to be with the Lord. They rise first, that is, before these Christians who are still living and caught up to be with the Lord, and go to meet the Lord in the air. The picture is that of a group of citizens going out from a city to meet a visiting dignitary and accompany him back. This implies that the Lord returns with his people to the earth. They certainly do not stay permanently on the clouds playing harps. This language was probably never intended to be understood absolutely literally. It is describing things that go beyond words. The important thing is that believers, whether the dead or the living, are from then with the Lord forever. And so we will always be with the Lord. Eternity with Christ is perfection and wonder. We will be with him. Whatever your dreams of heaven are, they're too small compared with the incomprehensible glory of being with Christ. Matthew 25, 34, uh, Jesus said this, The king will say to those who are on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The Bible Exposition Commentary says, You and I shall meet the Lord in the air in person when he comes for us. The Greek word translated meet carries the idea of meeting a royal person or an important person. We have walked with Christ by faith here on earth, but in the air we shall see him as he is and become like him, 1 John 3, 1 and 2. What a meeting that will be. It will be a glorious meeting because we shall have glorified bodies when he was here on earth, Jesus prayed that we might one day see his glory and share in it. That's in John 17. The suffering that we endure today will be transformed into glory when he returns. It will be an everlasting meeting, for we shall forever be with the Lord. This was his promise. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. John 14, 3. 
The goal of redemption is not just to rescue us from judgment, but to relate us to Christ. In other words, no one, not even the person with the most vivid imagination among us, can properly have a view of how impressive and great heaven will be. Nothing you have seen, nothing you have heard, nothing you can imagine can come close to understanding what God has in store for those who love him. There's a great scene at the end of the Narnia series in which C.S. Lewis writes of the characters finally entering the king's country, which is his representation of heaven. And it says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I think this is Reepicheep saying this. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. In other words, the wonders of heaven will never stop. For those in Christ, when we come to our final place of rest, it will be come further up, come further in throughout all eternity. As wonderful as the moment of our first encounter with Christ will be, it will always be learning and growing further up and further in. And now we get to the end of this passage, which we read before we began. Why should we pay attention to this passage at all? And what are we to do with it? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As we continue to press in and focus on evangelism, let us encourage one another with these words. This is the sort of encouragement many among us need today, and many in our world as well. As believers struggle with frailty of body and discouragement of spirit and sadness of life, may they be encouraged by this. Our blessed hope is that Jesus is coming again. If you are in Christ, when you are caught up to meet him in the air, what report will you give him? Will you be able to say, Lord, I have fulfilled the commission you gave me? Or will you have missed your opportunity to serve him, to obey him, to honor him? And of course, we've all missed the mark, right? Um, We've fallen short again and again. But today, let us be prepared to give an answer to Jesus for what we have done for him as we also seek to be prepared to give an answer to those around us for the hope that we have. As you go out today, whether you're staying for this packing party or you're doing some other service for the Lord, encourage one another with these words. God's word is powerful and active. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and a spirit of joints and a marrow, and discerning the heart, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let God's word this morning and through the week do that work of dividing. He wants to cut out the bad and strengthen the good in us. So look to his word to do this. And I'll remind you of the three statements I made at the beginning. The three things that we want to get from this message are to have our faith increased as we encourage one another with these truths that we will have our desire increased to see the lost around us join us in this faith, and that we will have our eyes on Jesus who is coming again soon and very soon. And I'll draw your attention again to the Advent candle that we put out extra early this year because our hope and our prayer as a church is that by the time we light that on Christmas Eve, the Lord will have delivered to us the answers to our prayer to see new people coming into his kingdom. 
And that also represents that Jesus is coming again, which is exactly what we just talked about. He is coming again. That is the Advent. And that is what we're going to be celebrating together. And by next week, we'll have invites ready for you to send, uh, to give out to your friends and family and neighbors to enjoy and invite them to come along with us. So as we close this time together, I just ask that you would be focused on this, thinking about the wondrous truth that Jesus is coming again. And if you are in him, you have those things to look forward to. You don't need to be worried about, as the Thessalonian church was worried about, what about the people who already died? What happened? If they were in Christ, they're going to be with Christ. They are with Christ, actually. And so we want to have that confidence, too. So if we, if we die before Christ comes, too, we'll know. We'll be with him. And that hope should drive us to share with our neighbors and friends and family. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that as we um, enter this season together where we've been praying, Lord, and asking you to grant us the privilege of being part of your kingdom work, to bring people into our paths that we can share with, and then, Lord, giving us a heart for the lost. And we've prayed, Lord, that you'd give us boldness to share. Lord, would you answer these prayers of your people here at Oasis Church, that we may look back on this season, maybe some years from now, and say, what did the Lord do? It was amazing. Oh, Lord, we want to see you working in our midst. We want you glorified through our lives and through our church here at Oasis. Please do it, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.